So if you've got your Bible, have it open to Luke 17, 1 to 10. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant ploughing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he then thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now it's going to be helpful. Whoa. It's going to be helpful if um, you have your Bible open in front of you so you can follow along with the passage that Karen read for us from Luke chapter 17. Uh, this is the end of this particular a uh, little series in Luke's Gospel. We're going to come back to Luke uh, in an, about a month's time. Uh, Matt is going to take us on a short excursion in the book of Acts. Uh, and so uh, you're going to have a different speaker from a different passage uh, for the next four weeks. And then we're going to come back into Luke uh, as we get towards the end of the year. We've been looking at a series uh, of teachings that Jesus has been giving in a block. And it's a block that... Uh, was uh, flowed out of um, the need to answer the grumbling of the religious leaders of the day. And uh, Jesus has been comparing the graceful religion that he is modelling and that he is teaching and he is calling us to live in with the graceless religion uh, by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, you'd be excused perhaps for actually seeing that a graceful religion looks a little bit like this. Because legalism is hard work, isn't it? Keeping all the rules, ticking all the boxes, that sounds like a lot of hard work. And so therefore, what Jesus must be calling us to is the opposite. Kick back, relax, because, you know, you've been listening to me and others say, Jesus has done all the work. You don't need to do anything, nor can you do anything? So therefore, is this what Jesus is calling us to? Kick back and relax. And I know that some of us really enjoyed the kick back and relax of online church. You could turn up in your Ugg boots and your, your dressing gown and have the cat there and your coffee and do all that kind of thing on the comfy couches, not these blue seats. Much more like this, isn't it? 
and all the work was done for you. Is that what Jesus is calling us to? Perpetual church online, you know? Well, Jesus answers that question. Uh, my first uh, or my second point gives it away, but here are the four points for this morning. Amazing grace, a hard road, ordinarily extraordinary, and grace overflows. Uh, let's dive in with amazing grace. Now, this is just a bit of a recap. Now, Jesus has been answering the grumbling of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are cranky because he, Jesus, is hanging around with the wrong people. The sinners and the tax collectors have been coming in and Jesus has welcomed them. And not only has he welcomed them, he's actually been eating with them, which is a gesture of profound acceptance. And the religious types don't like this because the sinners and the tax collectors, if they're going to come in at all, they should be made to pay. They should be excluded and, you know, kept at arm's distance. But if they do come back, maybe a bit of groveling, that kind of stuff might be in order. Well, in chapter 15, Jesus teaches us that spiritual blessings must overflow. That as we have received grace from God ourselves, so that overflows in the attitude that we are to show to others. And then he tells us in chapter 16 that it's not just the spiritual things, it's the material things as well. That as we have been blessed, we should show how God's blessing of us overflows to bless others. So God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. But we also enjoy incredible physical blessings. And we have those from God's hands. And so what Jesus is calling us to be is the kind of people who use that wealth in a way that is consistent with the one who has given it to us. And so we use our spiritual riches and our physical riches. Particularly here, Jesus draws us to concern for the lost to be found and compassion for the poor. He tells us that we are stewards. We are stewards of God's grace. And that is to be, it means that we're going to be more like pipes than dams. The whole point of a dam is it stores it in and it keeps it there. The whole point of a pipe is to pass it from one end to another. We are to be pipes, not dams. The blessing comes through us from God to others. That's what he tells us. It was never meant to stop with us. True religion, the religion that Jesus calls us to, is graceful. And it draws people in. It makes people think, wow. I want what they have. And we see that in the Gospels. That as people see and hear Jesus, they flock to him. And now here in chapter 17, Jesus wraps up this section. And he tells us that this life, this graceful religion, it's not so much the kick back and relax religion. It's not so much... The put your feet up, that that's not showing. Uh, it is the hard road. Now, Jesus, Jesus would be the world's worst used car salesman. 
I know I'm probably stretching the boundaries to say this, but Jesus, I think, would be an absolutely terrible used car salesman. Because why? He's totally up front in telling you all the difficulties. You don't believe me? Luke 9, he says to them, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. Okay, and in case you thought maybe that was just a one-off, he was just having a bad day, okay. Just a few chapters later, chapter 13, he tells us to make every effort to enter through the narrow door. It's a door that is hard to get through. And in case we miss that, one chapter later, anyone who comes to me and does not hate Father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. It's a hard road that Jesus calls us to. He doesn't call us to sit back and relax. He calls us to cherish him, to love him, to obey him, above all earthly allegiances. He tells us that he comes first before everything. And if we want to be his disciples, we can't do it half-heartedly. It's a tough road. And so here in chapter 17, verse 3, he warns us. He says, watch yourself. Now, Many of you will know I kind of like bushwalking. Uh, I get out there quite often uh, and walk the trails. And one of the things you cannot do on most trails is to let your mind, let your eyes wander. Because what you'll end up doing is uh, face planting into the track quite spectacularly. There'll be roots, there'll be rocks, there'll be things that will take you out so fast it's not funny. And Jesus here is saying... Watch yourself. He's saying, take care. Because this is not an easy road to walk. It is a tough road. He calls us to watch ourselves carefully. And particularly, it's not just about us. Because he gives us two illustrations here, or two examples, that tell us that actually what he's calling us to is a team sport. And he's telling us to watch ourselves, but in our relationships with others. And here he tells us to guard the centre as well as watch the edge. To guard the centre as well as watch the edge. And he tells us to care for those around us. Because you know what? The greatest boon or the greatest bane in our Christian lives, can be the people sitting around us. The greatest benefit and the greatest impediment. Do you actually think about that? When you come to church, do you realise that under God you have an incredible power to bless or perhaps even curse others? Jesus tells us... This is a team sport. You've got to guard the centre. You've got to watch the edge. He calls us to be 
radically other person centered. So verses one and two. Jesus now is talking to the disciples and he says things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Jesus is telling us to guard the centre. We are not a group of people who've just randomly decided that Macaulay Community School Gymnasium is where we want to be at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. We're not people who say, wow, you know, Matt's got that coffee machine humming and those baristas, it's the best coffee in the southwest of Adelaide. This is the place to be. It's great coffee, by the way. Love it. Okay. But we are people who have come to follow Christ. We have come because we have been called into his grace-filled religion. And if you're here this morning, you're either probably someone who is following Christ or you want to follow Christ. You want to get those questions answered. It's great that you're here because you're in the right place. But Jesus is saying that we must guard that centre. Because the things that cause people to stumble, that's a, it's a funny kind of phrase, but it's to stumble and fall irretrievably. It's the idea of falling from the path. It's the idea behind this is false teaching and those who will distort the gospel of grace. Jesus, I think, undoubtedly has in mind the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who had twisted the grace-filled religion of Scripture into a legalistic thing that just turned people away. Jesus is saying we must guard the centre because it is inevitable that things that cause people to stumble will come. He literally says, not as the NIV translates here, that they're bound to come. He literally says it is impossible that they not come. They are going to come. And church history teaches us that they have. We know this. There are churches that have given up on the gospel. There are times of human history where massive reformation was necessary to bring the church back to the gospel and the gospel back to the church. Because our hearts want to take us away. We love rules, we love ticking boxes, we love building ourselves up, not resting in grace. But also, the best way for Satan to destroy a church is to take the gospel from it. Because then the Christians won't be living in the freedom of grace and no one will come to faith. Because who wants that? If you want to destroy the church, destroy the gospel. Distort the gospel. And you will make things that make people to stumble. And Jesus says, this is so serious. It's better that you get chucked into the ocean with a millstone around your neck that's pretty stark, isn't it? We must guard the center. But also, Jesus tells us that we've got to watch the edges. Not to keep people out from coming in, but to stop losing people. He tells us this. He says, if a brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. 
And even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Jesus is saying, don't lose people easily. It's so easy when someone sins against you. What's our, what's our reaction? You know, we're, we're a little bit conflict averse, I think, as Aussies. And so we're much more likely just to shut down, just to move away. And, you know, I haven't noticed it so much here, but I've been in churches before where I've known people and I've known that the people over here, I'm going to pick on Peter because he's big enough, he can deal with it. I know this isn't the case in this particular, but, you know, I know that Peter actually, he doesn't like Trevor very much and Trevor doesn't like Peter. Okay, so that's why they're sitting over there and they can politely just maintain this distance and pretend that everything's okay, but they never talk to each other. And, you know, I noticed, Trev, that when you came in this morning, you saw that Pete was over here and you thought, I'm going to sit down the back there. You didn't do that, by the way. <laughs> I am just picking on you. But, uh, but you know that. And as Aussies, some of us, most of us, uh, that's what we do. We exclude, we shut down, we ignore. Okay, but Jesus says when someone sins against you, rebuke them. And maybe you've got an idea here, okay, good, Jesus is telling me I can tell them off. No, what's the aim of rebuking them? The aim of rebuking them is to see your relationship with them restored. They've caused offence, they've caused harm and you raise it with them with an idea that they would say, I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? And then you would say, certainly. The idea behind this is to restore relationships, not to go in and just hammer each other left, right and centre. The idea is that we protect the edges because we are playing a team sport it's all about keeping the team because we need the team if we're going to live out the grace-filled religion that jesus calls us to we actually need one another we need one another so we can stay on the path we need one another to pick ourselves up to pick each other up and to keep going jesus tells us that grace defines our life together. That's why he says if they do it seven times in a day, you forgive them seven times in a day. Seven being the complete number. He could have said, and he says in some other places, 70 times seven. There are no limits to God's grace to us, so there should be no limits to our grace to others. Now, this is a massive issue, can I say? The idea of forgiveness... Uh, is huge. Now, Jesus here is saying, he's speaking of life within a community. And where you have someone who has caused harm, who refuses to acknowledge that harm, it's hard to be in community, which is why here he says, if they repent, forgive them. At other points, scripture teaches us clearly that we should be forgiving. But here he's talking about the community of the grace-filled religion, us. And it's hard to maintain community where there are fractures that cannot be healed. 
So that's why Jesus brings this idea of repentance and then forgiveness. Because for restoration of relationship, that is necessary. But does it mean that if they don't repent, we can happily hold a grudge? Well, no. Think about the Lord's Prayer, brothers and sisters. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. God calls us to be on the front foot in forgiveness. He's talking here about caring for one another and maintaining community. Now, the one thing I do want to flag is there are massive nuances. I've spoken very generally. There are all sorts of uh, angles, tangents of this, and you might have a particular thing in your mind, and you're saying, but what about this? I would love to talk to you about that particular thing because it's not possible to deal with every option within a sermon. But what Jesus is saying is that as people who have been shown grace, we must be on the front foot to show that grace to others. And where it is all dependent upon us, we are living that out. We're on the front foot to extend forgiveness. If there is a rupture, it's not because we have not been forgiving, it's because they have been refusing to repent. But we are there ready, pleading to maintain that relationship. If you want to talk about it more, uh, come and grab me afterwards. Jesus pushes us on this line because the stakes are high. We're not just talking about a nice, happy community at church. We're talking about heaven and hell. We're talking about eternal destinies. We're talking about the glory of God. And so Jesus says, watch yourself. Watch yourself. Take care. The apostles object. Verse 5. Lord, increase our faith. Okay, what are they saying? It's too hard. We lack the resources. You haven't given us what we need to make this happen. So Jesus moves on, and we will to our third point, ordinarily extraordinary. Jesus answers their objection. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. The funny thing is, anyone ever tried that? As far as I know, Jesus never did it either. Uh, at other points, he uses not mulberry trees, but mountains. Uh, can I just say the whole point is not to give us a, uh, a diverting Sunday afternoon activity as we plant an orchard into the ocean. Uh, or move Mount Lofty uh, down into the sea. He's giving us an illustration that shows us that faith can do extraordinary things. But he's also telling us something else. Why does he draw us to the mustard seed? Now, the mustard seed for the people at that day was the smallest of all seeds. Beyond the mustard seed, you didn't go down. You only went up. Okay, so the smallest possible seed... Jesus is saying, if your faith matches that, you can plant an orchard in the ocean. You can move Mount Lofty to somewhere off the coast of Brighton, if you choose. 
What is he saying? See, the disciples, they saw faith kind of like if you play a computer game and you see down the bottom, uh, there are those two bars and one of those is your power and one of those is your life. And we think of faith like it's an objective thing. It's like the my power bank. And if I've got lots of faith, I can do lots of stuff. And if I haven't got lots of faith, I can't do lots of stuff. And the disciples are saying, there's not enough in our backpack. You haven't given us enough supplies. Increase our faith. No. One of my favourite songs. Uh, is anyone here daggy enough to like Manhattan Transfer? There's a, there's a few. There's a few. Mike... George, yeah, okay, and yeah, yeah, okay. They've got a great song called Operator. Okay, if you haven't, you can get it on um, on uh, on YouTube. It's a fantastic song. And it, it's, they're there and they say, I'm not going to sing it for you because they've got brilliant voices. Why not? Why not? Yeah, okay, there's a good reason. Uh, operator, give me long distance. Long distance, give me heaven. Give me Jesus on the line. What's he telling us? It's a funny little song. It's a great song. But it's actually saying faith is not so much the power button on the computer screen. It's not what's in your backpack. It is who's on the other end of the line. That's what he's saying. Faith is about a link, a relationship that you have with God. And it's not the strength of your faith, but the one in whom your faith is placed. And if you've got enough faith to make the call, you can do extraordinary things. Jesus is saying you have the hotline to heaven. And so if you are struggling, get on the line and ask the one who can do all things, who can bring darkness out of, or light out of darkness, creation out of nothing, with the power of his word, do you think he can help you sort it out with your friend? Of course he can. Of course you can. Get on the call, get on the line, talk to the one who can do all things. Jesus is saying you have everything you need if you have the smallest amount of trust in God. And now Jesus wraps up this teaching. He introduces not the super Christian, but the ordinary Christian. He tells us that the grace-filled religion, the life where blessings overflow, is not the domain of the few, but this is the ordinary garden-variety Christian. The one who has compassion for the lost and concern for the poor, they're not the super-Christians, the uber-Christians, the ones that go to conventions, you know. No, he's saying this is normal. This is the one who is doing what I have done for you. The ordinary, garden-variety disciple of Jesus. He tells a little story. Suppose one of you has a servant ploughing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come now, sit down and eat. Won't he rather say, prepare my supper. Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that you may eat and drink. Well, he thanked the servant because he did what he was told to do. Now, I've probably said it a million times, I'll say it again. The word here that we translate servant is a Greek word that means uh, literally slave. 
Because the NIV is translated in the North American context and their history of race-based slavery, they shy away from uh, translating doulos as slave. What we should not see this man doing, he's not a servant who draws a wage. He's a slave who is actually owned by the master. And so when he goes out to the fields, he's not earning his daily wage. When he comes in, he's not racking up a bit of overtime. He is owned by the master. And this was something that was common knowledge. And so what's the standard answer? Jesus asked the question, who would do this? And the answer is, no one. As if you would. As if you would. That's his job. That's what he's meant to do. The master is not indebted. He doesn't even have to say thank you. It would be nice if he did, but you know what? He doesn't owe the servant, he doesn't owe the slave anything. This is not exceptional. So Jesus then ties it to us. So you also, disciple of Jesus, when you have done everything you were told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done our duty. Okay. What is Jesus telling us? That this is just ordinary Christianity. That you would have concern for the lost. That you would show compassion to the poor. That you would seek out your brother and sister and do the hard yards to restore relationship. That you would protect the gospel of grace so others might be led to know the God that you know. That grace might overflow the spiritual blessing that came to you, the material blessing that God has entrusted to you, would overflow to others. Jesus is just saying, when you have done everything, we don't get to pick and choose. When we have done everything, we can only say we have done our duty. What's he mean when he says unworthy servants? It's a, it's a difficult word, this, when you go into the original. Uh, and I think unworthy kind of has that sense of, actually, this guy has done everything he was asked to do. So why is he an unworthy servant? Um, the word actually means we are servants or we are slaves that you owe nothing to. And so do we as Christians... Do we think, I came to church this morning, I read my Bible, I've been evangelising, I've been blessing the poor, I've been seeking out the person and seeking to restore relationship, I've been chalking up brownie points. No. Grace means we are just doing our duty. This is just ordinary Christianity. It is nothing exceptional. See, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they thought they were putting God in their debt. And if we turn our faith into a legalistic religion, we do stuff for God, he does it for us. And we get cranky when he doesn't deliver. But that's what Jesus challenges here. He says, even when you have done everything, you are a servant, you are a slave to whom the master owes nothing. 
How does grace work? Let me give you a couple of things. Grace means if we are saved by grace, everything that he has done, nothing that we bring ourselves. It means that there are no limits to what he can call us to do. There are no limits. If we were employees, we would have rights, yes? But we are slaves. We have been purchased by his grace. Grace means that God can ask us anything. But you know the amazing thing about grace is it means that he will always be working in that to bless us. He's never going to rip us off. Romans 8 says it. He has given us Christ. Will he not, along with everything, give us all things? He's given us the best. Why would he stint on the little stuff? Grace means there's no limits, but that God is at work in our obedience to bless. Grace means that he owes us nothing. That we can never put God in our debt. That we can never through our performance mean that God owes us. Isaiah 64 tells us that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. But you know what? Grace tells us that he has given us everything that we need. Brings us to our last point. God owes us nothing. He doesn't owe us a good life. He doesn't owe us a comfortable life. He doesn't owe us to answer our prayers. He calls us to live for him. But do you know the amazing thing is that he freely gives us more than we could ever earn. Even if we laboured for an eternity, he gives us in Christ, Ephesians 1 that uh, Simon read for us before, Every spiritual blessing. John th 1 John 3 tells us that, wow, behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called his sons and daughters. He has freely given us more than we could ever earn. And to flip the parable, what kind of a master serves his slaves? Do you see it? This kind of a master serves his slaves. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus Christ in the very nature God humbled himself, took on the nature of a slave. He took on our nature and was obedient to death on a cross bearing our sin and shame. He didn't come in and say, sit down and have dinner. He came and said, I will pay what you owe. I will pay it to its depths. Brothers and sisters, the grace-filled religion that he calls us to live is a religion that comes from his fullness as it pours into our lives. And he encourages us to stay focused on him. To see the servant king. To see the master who served. 
that we should be amazed that we are his people and he is our God. And so as we follow him, yes, it's a hard road, but it's the best road. And he has given us everything we need. He is with us. So trust him. Call him. Live for him. Rejoice in his grace. Rest in it. Let that grace overflow from you into the lives of others. Let it transform you. And as that happens, God will transform others through you. Let's pray. Father, Jesus has blessed us so richly. You and your grace and mercy have given us something we could never earn. And Father, although you call us to live for you in a world that opposes you, and that is not easy. Father, although you call us to forgive where it is easy to hate, to look to ourselves rather than look to others, to keep our eyes focused on you, that is what you call us to do. Father, we ask that you would amaze us each and every day with the grace you have given us in Christ. Let us hold the centre firm, keeping your grace, holding it out to others. Let us not let any of the brothers and sisters, the little ones, let them not fall away. Let our graceful lives Keep them in and draw others as well. Father, we pray that you would change us, that we would be more like Christ and through us change others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.